The genesis of modern art owes much to the 19th century symbolist movement. Andre Pop's new book, A Forest of Symbols, presents a lucid reassessment of those writers and artists. Join Harper's Magazine for a conversation with the author November 6th at 7 p.m. Learn more at bookculture.com event. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. We're all familiar with the good and the bad aspects of the post-war economic boom. Increased access to higher education, greater prosperity, but also white flight and urban decay. This financial momentum helped to lessen the hold America's ruling class, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, had over governmental, educational, and social institutions. Yet the less well-known story, but perhaps the more significant one, is from the 1970s onward, when wages stagnated and the gap between the top and bottom earners continuously widened. In the November issue, Doug Henwood examines the WASP mindset and considers the tendency of certain white people to opine for the good old days of their rule. I spoke to Henwood about his socioeconomic history of the WASPs and what possibilities are open now that so many of the institutions they created, like the presidency, have deteriorated or become wholly irrelevant. So, I mean, this this piece is, and we all know these people, this piece is, your piece is essentially for somebody who says stuff like, well, at least George W. Bush didn't do something Trump does. So why? <laughs> There's a lot of that going around. So why should we care about what that person might miss in society? Assuming, assuming that, dear listener, you're not one of these people who feels this way. <laughs> um, well, I think we're masking the brutality, the long-running brutality of American life. If we think that uh, and vulgarity and you know avarice, avariciousness and you know, everything that we want to think about Trump, uh, we're missing the uh, the long pedigree this has in our national um, history and culture. Uh, that uh, the WASP maybe had a better presentation, but they could also be brutal and racist and warrior-like, uh, like the rest of them, um, masculinist. You know, many of the things that. Uh, Trump brings, obviously, to uh, you know extreme degrees. I think that one of the scandals of Trump is that he makes so explicit things that are supposed to be kept, you know, sotto voce and yeah. discreetly under the table, but he brings it right out there in the open, like just what the other day, or um, he's saying, um, oh, you and your emoluments clause. Like, you know, he just doesn't care at all for any notions of bourgeois propriety, which is scandalizing, but also, I don't know, it's kind of refreshing to have somebody tell the truth for a change. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of cool to have, you know, think that there are children now growing up who don't respect the president. Like they don't have to go through a period of their life where they're like, well, so it's yeah, I'm old enough to remember when that, you know, kind of started happening. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the 60s with when the Kennedy assassination there was, oh, my God, you know, terrible violence happens here. But also uh Nixon uh, and utterly discrediting the presidency, it seemed forever, although it, uh, the presidency made something of recovery. But you know, you look back at the things that Nixon said to Kissinger, and 
They're all done in private, but they're captured in the White House tapes. They're appallingly racist and violent, precisely how Trump is in public. You know, that uh, uh, when uh, Nixon suggested to Kissinger that maybe they should use nuclear weapons in North Vietnam and uh, uh, Kissinger, to to imagine being reined in by Kissinger, said, uh, uh, well, I think that's a bit much, Mr. President. And uh, Nixon said, I just want you to think big, Henry. Uh, So, you know, like, that's, that's not completely unlike Trump now, although, you know, then it was done inside the Oval Office rather than, uh, you know, on Twitter. Right. So let's step back a second and let's sort of parse aside from what the actual acronym WASP stands for. What are the characteristics of the WASP? And, you know, you're sort of touching on this thing of like politeness, propriety, what else? Yeah, well, many of the original settlers in the U.S. Uh, were uh, from England and you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants before the term, uh, before the concept. But they didn't really come to consciousness as a group until the latter part of the 19th century when we started getting a lot of immigrants from Eastern and uh, Southern Europe here. And uh, they were scandalized. Uh, they felt uh, that they might, uh, <laughs> the Charlottesville rioters said we might, you know, we're going to be replaced by all these disreputable sorts from uh, unwelcome precincts of, of Europe. And so that's when they really came to consciousness as a class, when they founded their prep schools and their clubs and uh, became uh, fetishistically obsessed with their um, their ancestry and that is um, and, and that gentility uh, the, the gentility of their class as opposed to the brutality of the mass is one of the things that was supposed to distinguish them from the, from the rabble uh, and so when we think of the the wasps now or you know as they were in their heyday they all had uh, you know, good manners, good breeding, um, went to the proper prep schools, uh, went to the proper secret societies in, in their Ivy League uh, colleges, uh, and then graduated into uh, careers in law or diplomacy or any respectable professions. But they were never supposed to be naked in their avarice. They were supposed to be, they, were, they had money, but they were not supposed to flaunt it. Uh, and, there, you know, that discretion and sense of noblesse oblige. And, you know, there's enough truth to it that uh, you can sustain the myth. Uh, but always underneath it, there was an incredible brutality going on. We were talking about you know, eradicating Indians and putting people into slavery at, at first, or, you know, continuing you know, into the Jim Crow era and you know, the brutalities of the Cold War. Uh, the Vietnam War uh, was a real wasp enterprise, the Bay of Pigs invasion, the early CIA, all that stuff. Um, so you know, there was certainly a lot of brutality, but it was done um, always with a, a proper respect for manners. Right. And I mean, how do you see that concern for politeness play out in other sort of spheres of American, you know, like public American life, you know, how the 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 perhaps anti-intellectualism of the country where there are certain things that you just don't talk about, you know, Operation Varsity Blues shows that there's a strong correlation between how much your parents earn and how well you will do scholastically, but nobody talks about how much money they earn because that's rude, right? Yeah, that, that's rude. Although, you no, know, now these days it's it's it, we flaunt it when they yeah. opened up, you know, the Ivy League institutions uh, to uh, merit admissions that generally meant uh, that money ended up counting more than than pedigree um, for getting into Yale and Harvard, but. The politeness is a very mixed bag because I, I quote in the piece, I quote uh, Digby Baltzell, who is uh, the great sociologist chronicler of the wasps, uh, who mm-hmm. popularized the term, he didn't quite coin it, who was one himself, grew up in the Philadelphia mainline. Uh, and he said, he wrote a book on the Philadelphia aristocracy, and he said that um, 
he never really knew much about the circumstances of the people he grew up with until he did the research for the book. It's like their, their family and the money and all that sort of thing. Nobody ever talked about that. It was all kept uh, kept secret. Um, uh, and Baltel finds a virtue in this, that this is somehow legitimating, socially legitimating, to have this quasi-hereditary aristocracy that was ruled by what they like to think of as you know a higher set of morals rather than just pure money-grubbing. Uh, this was supposed to be legitimating, legitimating a social hierarchy and trying to balance uh, the competing forces of democracy and uh, elite rule in American life, which is a problem going back to the, the, the Constitution, in which the Constitution really enshrined uh, the system of really checking democracy through institutions like the Senate and the courts. Uh, and the, the, the states, the division of powers. And strangely enough, uh, James Baldwin endorsed this. Uh, Baltzell mm-hmm. quotes Baldwin, uh, which I you know, was surprised to see this quote in there. But you know, he said that there's something to be said for uh, these old Virginia and New England families who brought a, a manner and a grace and a sense even of the aesthetic um, to, to, to life, which is pretty funny given that you know, a lot of the aesthetic of wasp culture is just... Uh, grotesquely uh, repressed and uh, <laughs> <laughs> not something not, it's certainly not the sensuality of Florence by any means right <laughs> uh, but they did during the early Cold War subsidize things like partisan review and uh, um, free jazz and you know uh, uh, um, abstract art in order to mm-hmm. make the US look less barbarous in the eyes of the rest of the world um, so they did uh, do some half decent cultural work even if it was in the service of projecting American power but uh, you know, and then they, they founded museums and all. There's this sense <laughs> that um, the uh, the idea was to uh, um, stewardship, you know, this, this core concept. And they had a civilization that they were supposed to take care of and pass on to their descendants. And like, a lot of the foundational crimes of, of these fortunes were several generations previous, so they, mm-hmm. they, they could forget about all that. Uh, how many of these fortunes were founded on slavery, for example, you know, especially in the South, it's, it's remarkable. I have a friend whom I quote in the piece but anonymously who said uh, she grew up from um, Richmond aristocracy, Richmond wasp aristocracy. And I didn't really get in too much into the, the Southern angle on this, but it's an interesting one I have to get into in the future. But she grew up uh, being taught to be proud of the fact that she came from one of the largest slaveholding families in, in Virginia. Um, hmm. So... Um, there was, there was a certain snobbery that, that lived on <laughs> based on oh, one's participation in early crimes. Um, but generally, you know, one doesn't like to talk about those things. One um, buries them under um, several generations of inheritance. Yes. Uh, but it's funny that you know, both, both Baltzell and Baldwin are saying that uh, something that constrains the vulgarity of, of the mass is, is kind of a good thing. And for someone who... Um, you know, is a, a socialist and a, and a Democrat in, in the most radical sense. That's very disturbing to hear. But we also have to acknowledge that our society is set up in a very hierarchical way. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, you know, the Constitution in, uh, enshrines this rule by our hierarchy um, where, where we, you know, we're taught to respect our superiors and all that sort of thing. It's a society that's very much based on chains of command. Uh, and if things are rotten at the top, as they very much are now, uh, then, uh, then the rest of the society has a problem, which does leave an opening for people with more radical uh, temperaments, but uh, it does uh, uh, present some problems for the, uh, the reproduction of the system. Yes. I mean, I, I would love to hear more about that because, I mean, Mike Pence, uh, Betsy DeVos, all of these people in the cabinet more or less, they conform to 
this wasp ideal, although they're evangelicals, which is a whole other mess, but they, they still, there are still plenty of controls and like Robert S. Mueller, for instance, his, his fetishization and that this is like, this is the real deal. This is a real G man who's going to come in and get rid of this gangster. How, you know, compared with other religious and ethnic groups in the U S has the, the wasps influence faded or, just sort of carried on, except for this, you know, except for Trump, where it's a little, <laughs> a little grotesque, a little too obvious. It's funny how that Mueller became this hero to a, a certain form of portion of the resistance, as they yeah. like to call themselves. Uh, yeah, he was an aristocrat of that that breed, you know, um, I can't remember which, uh, Groton, I think, maybe I can't remember which one he went to, but, you know, the three sticks at the end of his name, all that sort of thing. He, he <laughs> came out of that world, that austere discipline that he projected, you know, supposed to be a kind of propriety. Um, you know, he did lie about uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, so he was certainly not, um, his record was not clean. But they, uh, the wasps have definitely declined in their power. I mean, really, the, the final days were, I guess, really as as dominant in, in the political sense would be the, the Kennedy years. Uh, they, they were felt sort of uh, thrown into exile in, in the Eisenhower period uh, and then came back. JFK, although born Irish and Catholic, um, sort of cultivated the wasps and they, they more or less accepted him with mm-hmm. a few exceptions. And uh, they had a lot big hand in creating the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, they, uh, you know, as I said uh, in the piece, the, uh, the, the period of wasp dominance of... Uh, um, uh, foreign policy kind of ended with the last helicopter out of, out of Saigon. Um, you know, they're, they're around, um, but they just don't have that, that clout that they used to. Uh, the, um, the, the, the State Department used to be full of them, which is why people like McCarthy and uh, even Trump, I think, hated, hate the State Department. It does have that aristocratic uh, upper-class uh, um, aura about it. And uh, that, that, of course, is pretty much gone now. They certainly have some money. They have uh, prestige, but uh, they don't have any anywhere near the social power they once did at all. Because this, you know, this ruling class that we have now is one that's driven by money uh, and uh, the accumulation of money in a very short period of time. And I, you know, I can, I'll, I can make fun of their notions of stewardship, but it's hard to believe that the uh, the old wasp establishment, were it in power today would be uh, climate skeptics, for example. You know, they, they did have this deep environmentalist streak. Some of it was because they kind of didn't like people very much or didn't like the masses very much, <laughs> they preferred nature. On the other hand, there was this sense that you, know, you just, don't, just com- don't completely foul the nest. It's a, a very, it's bare, very bad form to do that. You know, now we have guys who look to the melting of those, uh, the polar ice caps as an opportunity to drill for oil. And that I don't think would have been their way, uh, way of doing things at all. Um, but they, they, yeah, and you look at Mueller and his inability to rein in Trump. It's remarkable to see Democrats now just looking to the CIA and the FBI as, uh, as the institutions that are going to deliver them from um, this excrescence of Trump. It does seem like a society that's lost its um, self-control mechanisms, like all the borders uh, are, are, are gone. There's a Trump just ranting at a cabinet meeting on um, Monday morning, just what free association of utterly insane remarks. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he is like this pulsating id of American politics, just out of the closet, you know, in the center of the room. um, And everybody's just gawking and completely 
deranged. Um, he's just, everybody, the whole society has been deranged by this character. But on the other hand, the society that can produce him has some serious problems too. A big part of this, instead of you're born into it, this idea of this false meritocracy where, oh, because anybody can get rich, theoretically anybody can get rich if you just work hard enough and that there's this there's this like money is somehow this great leveler when in fact it is the absolute opposite of that and that you know you have people who can in a very short period of time basically since the 1980s when all of these controls were sort of lifted and trickled down economics started happening you can you can just you know there's there's no there are no more boundaries and yeah trump in that in that regard trump is a perfect example of again somebody who embodied like this uh real american these american values what what happens when you kind of shuffle that away yeah i mean you look at look at his business career uh, he got rich and god knows how rich he really is it could just all be um fake accounting <laughs> fake numbers mm-hmm. but uh he did acquire what wealth he has by um, loading up companies with debt, taking the money out, and then letting them collapse. That was his whole strategy in Atlantic City. Um, his uh, commerce secretary, Wilbur Ross, uh, started by representing the bondholders in, in, for the casinos, and somehow he persuaded the bondholders to accept uh, a settlement in because Trump was going bankrupt. The casinos were about to collapse. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he got them to accept a settlement that... Uh, allowed Trump to walk away with a whole lot of money. Um, so how this guy is supposed to be representing the interests of the bondholders ends up <laughs> um, representing Trump's. Um, but uh, that that's his whole ethic, and that's the, the ethic of a large portion of the American business class, uh, which uh, is, is very prominent in the Republican Party now. The, the people around the Coke network, for example, mm-hmm. are just this sort of thing. They're reckless. Uh, they hate environmental regulations. Uh, they're all private, uh, privately held. They don't even want public shareholders to tell them what to do. Uh, and they just want to let things run riot. Uh, and it's, there, there's no sense at all of, of, of the stewardship. Now, I must give the Koch, the Koch network credit. No, <laughs> no longer the Koch brothers because David has moved on. But um, Koch brother. Yes, the Koch brother. Well, I think they're not trying to think of themselves as a network. They have these mm. annual festivities where they uh, they get together and plot. But they they have done a really amazing job of, of plotting a real long term uh, a real long term rise to a great deal of political power. They pretty much run the Republican Party now, and it is this, it's this, all this smash and grab ethic of borrowing lots of money and uh, don't worry about you can you go go bankrupt and that's a business strategy. Don't worry about what's happening to the climate or or po- dumping uh, poisons in a stream. You know, it's just all this. I just want my money now kind of thing uh that's where trump comes out of and he, it's not he's not he's far from alone you know there's a whole whole bunch of the business sector is like that and much of the republican party is like that uh and the republican party funnily used to be the uh the the um the preferred party of the the old northeastern wasp establishment going back into the you know, 20s 30s into 50s and 60s but uh the right took them over dislodged all the old uh, rockefeller and whitney types and uh, now it's just uh, the party of uh, coke and trump and mcconnell and some nazis they picked those yes. guys up <laughs> well the, the nazis are always kind of in the picture but yeah. then on the other hand we we shouldn't uh let the wasp hook <laughs> on this one either yeah. I and mean, george uh george hw bush's father prescott was trading with the nazis well past the point he should have stopped um, but also, 
the Uber boss, uh, John McCloy, um, was the uh, proconsul of Germany after the war, and uh, he uh, did a lot to help incorporate the Nazi estel- uh, intelligence establishment into the early CIA. Uh, they mm. were very soft to the Nazis. Uh, they did some very high-profile uh, hangings, but um, just below that high, pro- high that upper uh, crust, uh, they incorporated a lot of it into the early CIA, and uh, McCloy... Um, who at one point I think was the simultaneously the chair of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Chase Manhattan Bank, and uh, the Ford Foundation. So he was like running all these pillars of the establishment all at once. Uh, and, but you know he did um, enable uh, the incorporation of Nazis uh, into into the early American intelligence apparatus. The rationale was that they had good uh, good intelligence in the Soviet Union, but um, they really uh, let some appalling people. Uh, uh, not only uh, rehabilitate themselves, but uh, rise to fairly high levels in American uh, politics. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, that's true with stuff like Operation Paperclip as well, that it's like, oh, they had such cool stuff. We have to have that stuff. Maybe the Soviets have that stuff. And just the 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 building on the lie on top of the lie to look away from what, you know, was actually happening there. But I want to go back. You mentioned the Council on Foreign Relations. So, and I think it is a fascinating organization. Um, could you briefly summarize its uh, formation and how it kind of set the stage for the entrance of the wise men and how and how it interacts now with, you know, wealthy donors like, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, for instance? <laughs> oh, God, that uh, that character. Jesus. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that would be a story in itself. I'm sure there will be many written in the coming years. But uh, the council emerged out of out of World War One, uh, a bunch of American and British rich guys and uh, they're the people they pay to think for them uh, decided they wanted to create some kind of long uh, lasting permanent uh, institution uh, that would um, institutionalize a lot of the relationship to de- that developed during World War One of uh, at the elite level and uh, plans on some sort of long-term foreign policy so they, they got together um, in, in Britain, there that became Chatham House, and in the United States, the Council on Foreign Relations. And although you know they're not institutionally um, tied, they they have a lot in common and a lot of uh, um, relationships with each other. And uh, they didn't really mat- amount to very much until Roosevelt came into office. And Roosevelt was trying to move away from classic American isol- isolationism and develop mm-hmm. a real internationalist uh, foreign policy, uh, which would also uh, make possible uh, the. Uh, the acquisition of the British Empire after World War II, essentially, and also uh, lay the groundwork for uh, the expansion of U.S. multinationals um, into Europe and then the rest of the world. And uh, they, uh, the council was a bunch of like Wall Street lawyers and, and investment bankers and academics and people like that. And they get together and plan and write briefing papers. And they had a substantial influence on, on the Roosevelt administration's foreign policy. Uh, and then they were very influential uh, going you know, through, through World War II and then afterwards in helping to uh, design uh, the acquisition of that failed British Empire. Mm-hmm. And then you know, really uh, they were very crucial architects of a lot of the whole post-World War II order. And when people now complain about uh, Trump destroying all these pillars of the post-war order, this is what, what we're talking about, is the architecture of empire that was created during the war and right after it uh, that would, that would uh, cement the world into a, a secure hierarchy with the U.S. at the top and uh, Europe and Japan just underneath and then down at the bottom, um, the colonies as they were, yeah. and then the ex-colonies and um, 
what we used to call the third world, or now call the developing world, or the emerging markets, or whatever. But it was, you know, it was very, um, it was very thought out. It was very planned. You had to uh, uh, respect the uh, the skill uh, and vision that they had of creating this um, very hierarchical and fairly stable, by their own me- um, measures, world. And uh, that uh, has largely fallen apart. I mean, as we see with the the Trump administration, that uh, um, all the, that. that what what's scandalizing a lot of elites about Trump's behavior is not you know, the appalling stuff like uh, concentration camps on the border or um, his uh, his climate uh, nihilism, but uh, the fact he's undermining NATO and things like that. That mm-hmm. this is this is what a lot of people are very upset about. Uh, and what really got the you know the impeachment uh, some of the th- stuff that got the impeachment uh, uh, stuff going was you know, foreign policy, yeah. uh, uh, Ukraine uh, and uh, and all that. Um, the, uh, the seven security Democrats, as they're called, the uh, the House freshmen who have backgrounds in the uh, the military and the intelligence uh, side, were were quite alarmed with what Trump is doing. You can see. Oh. The, the two whistleblowers that were um, CIA people, you know, they, they, that that structure is, is rebelling against Trump. But uh, it's remarkable that they've been unable to um, do anything in all these, you know, it's been what, a thousand days he's in office that uh, that, mm. that he just keeps barreling on and surviving. Every, you know, his, his imminent death gets pronounced every other day, but uh, he does seem to be uh, carrying on. And these are people who are... We're, um, have long practice at overthrowing governments and destroying political figures, but uh, they can't bring this guy down yet. But uh, that that's the structure that uh, he's really um, challenging from the inside in ways that uh, just never could have imagined before. Yeah, that's what's so fascinating is that, again, you know, the CIA never met a government it couldn't um, destabilize. And yet here we are with our own problem. And there seems to be this real hesitant Again, it seems like there's this really deep allegiance to certain institutions and the idea that, well, there certain procedures must be followed. And yet it's like, well, clearly this is somebody who doesn't care about any of that. And we could just start over. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we just watch him every day. And one of the most um, stunning things is that a guy who just doesn't care about bourgeois norms. Yeah. Who, who takes um, pleasure, obviously, almost erotic pleasure in smashing them. Uh, and this is what appeals to a lot of his fans. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing to see what you can get away with like that. There's this guy um, who was, I believe, the president of the Municipal Art Society back when Trump was trying to develop the Upper West Side of Manhattan back in the 80s. And Municipal Art Society is one of these classic old fart wasp institutions. <laughs> where you know, they're, And they're, they're sweet preservationists. You know, they help you know, preserve landmarks and fight developers extreme you know extreme development and that sort of thing so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm glad I, I guess I'm glad they exist but he, he was fighting Trump with these grandiose uh, schemes that he had in the Upper West Side and the guy said you know you go into a meeting with Trump and you say um, he, he won't be able to get away with this and you know how's he get away with all this stuff he won't be able to get away with this and then six months later he's gotten away with it yeah. you know like you just like you just wonder how does he keep doing this and this is what 35 years ago we're talking about that uh, and it's still the same thing how does a guy get away with it you know i moved to new york in 1979 and it was that's when trump was first coming on the scene and he as a condition of uh refurbishing the um uh the hotel next to grand central uh, hyatt the hyatt the hotel uh he was supposed to uh also rebuild some of the subway entrances around there around grand central uh, he didn't. 
they just didn't. You know, that was part of his agreement, but he didn't do it. Nobody stopped him. Then when he uh, took the Bonwit Teller building uh, a little while later, uh, and there were some valuable friezes on there that he was supposed to preserve and give to a museum. And instead, he hired some people in the middle of the night, uh, undocumented Polish workers he didn't pay for 20 years, uh, to, to smash them down. And, you know, he got, he got away with that, too. Yeah. But... You know, your your piece ends on a guardedly optimistic note that, you know, as you, you said, you know, we have this breakdown of kind of political defense mechanisms that could, you know, it's created an opportunity for somebody like Donald Trump, but it also uh, presents a real opportunity for the left, that the left could rise to this challenge and be like, okay, so here's a better, less awful way to structure society and even though it's been drilled into your head that socialism is evil socialism is anything that happens in venezuela that's bad what is the shape of that opening and what are those opportunities and i mean something just beyond like aoc or ilhan omar or rashida Tlaib. like what are those openings well, they are pretty good right now. I mean, it's great to see that. You know, I'm active in, in DSA, and I'm very happy mm-hmm. to see uh, DSA 55 or 60,000 members. Um, and the fact that socialism is not a dirty word among younger people anymore at all, quite the contrary. Capitalism has become something of a yeah. dirty word. Uh, but it's just to see this disarray at the top of the society uh, is, is remarkable, that they, they can't organize a, a defense mechanism. Uh, against um, this um, strange beast who's inhabiting the the, the Oval Office, and that kind of disarray, and uh, the just just at least seems to have a possibility that if you know if your enemy is divided against itself, uh, that gives you a uh, an opening. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, the things that the uh, a stable elite uh, is supposed to do, according to both. Um, uh, the Baldwin that uh, Baltzell appropriated and Bal- uh, Bal- Baltzell himself is uh, uh, that that's supposed to like kind of police the boundaries of acceptable discourse. And uh, that operated for many, many decades uh, with uh, considerable success and you know, all this notion of bipartisan comedy that is now, of course, out the window, but it dominated a lot of American politics for decades. Uh, the differences between the two parties in the 50s and 60s are, were much less dramatic than they are now. So there seems to be much less unity at the top, uh, a lot of a split at the elite level, um, but also an inability to get anything done. And it's clear that Trump, for example, uh, he silenced what a lot of the opposition that the corporate and Wall Street class would have happened had to him, because they they like stability, they like they're internationalists in the sense that they want the free movement of capital and people and goods. Uh, they hate the trade wars. They they most of them are pretty appalled by his anti-immigrant feeling. The general sense of instability and chaos is. Exactly the opposite of what the capitalist class likes, but they, they they can't stop him. And part of the problem is that he gave him tax cuts and deregulation, and that's all they care about. Uh, you, if you look back into the the seventies, the the business elite organized quite successfully to uh, uh, instigate a class war from above. And that you know, came to fruition with uh, Paul Volcker at the Federal Reserve uh, from 1979 to 86, creating a very, very deep recession, breaking labor, uh, and just really transforming consciousness. And then Ronald Reagan in the White House from 81 to 89, uh, doing the same, firing the air traffic controllers, uh, just uh, creating this possibility of, of, of a real uh, um, accumulation of capital without any kind of opposition. And uh, they, they barreled on for, for years and years and years, but now that all seems rather tired, uh, rather shot. 
Uh, it has no credibility at all to an awful lot of the population. Uh, and the, the, the fact that uh, the elites are that divided among themselves, they couldn't mount an ideological offensive on the scale of the, uh, that they did in the 1970s. Um, they can't defend internationalism. You know, they're having a really hard time defending globalization, all these things mm-hmm. that have been sacred to the, 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 uh, the order uh, for the last uh, three decades. Uh, um, just really has very few ideological defenders uh, right now. And uh, people are um, fed up. They they see what's supposed to be a good economy like here, you know, low unemployment rates and like, uh, ten years of official economic expansion, and they feel broke. They don't feel secure. Um, they feel insecure. Uh, they feel like uh, people on top are getting away with murder, and uh, um, which they are. And yeah. uh, this creates uh, a, a great great sense of opportunity. You know, the Sanders uh, campaign um, uh, what, what, what had a tremendous effect on younger people, brought a whole lot of younger people into politics. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of people I talk to in DSA who are decades younger than I am, um, don't have a real clear idea of what they mean by socialism. Um, they're learning. Uh, they have, uh, <laughs> and... Um, There's I, a lot of reading to do. <laughs> yeah, but I, it's just inspiring to me. I go to these meetings, yeah. the North Brooklyn Political Education Committee, for example. People just want to sit around and talk about serious things in ways I just don't remember. And they do it with um, a, a decency and a comradeship towards each other that I haven't seen in my, my grown-up years. Uh, and that, that's inspiring. It's like, it does seem like there's an awful lot of energy on the left end of the spectrum, and uh, the center is just completely collapsed. And uh, the center right and the right are in disarray. Um, it, it's just, um, you know, I think it was, was it Mal? Is it like um, chaos is loosed upon the world? Um, it's, a, it's a great moment. You know, it's like there's a there's a sense of possibility in in, in this fluidity and the, the coming unstuck of so many so many norms. It could take a really nasty turn too. I mean, you could have pogroms and you know, God knows what else. But um, uh, there does also seem to be an opening where the uh, all these ideological containers have been burst asunder. Yeah. You know, in your at the end of the in your bio, you say that you're working on a book about the rot of the American ruling class. And I guess is are all of these things and more going to be in that, or? Yeah, I mean, this is an important piece of it, and it's something I've been thinking about a long time. And mm. uh, you know, I actually, when I started doing this thing, I've suggested to, this uh, to uh, people at Harper's long ago, and uh, I just. In, uh, I procrastinated a lot, and uh, <laughs> so it took me a long time to actually sit down and write the thing, but. Um, this is an important part of it. And when when George H.W. died, I found people saying things that I thought myself that, uh, oh, yeah, maybe it was a better ruling class. You know, maybe it was more, more coherent. Maybe we would be better off with these kinds of people. And I had to, like, seeing people like Ross Douthat agree with that <laughs> um, made me say, no, I have to rethink this. I have to rethink this all. Um, so you know, I got more deeply into reading about these characters and uh, found out precisely how appalling they were in you know, in so many dimensions. Um, so that, that cured me of that uh, nostalgia for a better elite. But what has happened since I started thinking about these things is this, uh, uh, this, this energy on the left that didn't exist uh, even, no, what, four years ago. Um, right. So uh, that, that, that's something that uh, really, has, uh, really um, uh, has, has changed the way I think about some of these things. 
But the original point that a society that is organized around a very hierarchical notion of governance has very serious problems when the uh, the upper part of the hierarchy is, is so rotten. And it's one that uh, it just only seems to care about money uh, and money in the shortest possible time. The most money in the shortest possible time seems to be the, uh, the driving impulse of so many uh, in, in, uh, uh, in the business class. You know, they, back in the 50s and 60s, you used to hear all these uh, things about uh, that there are many stakeholders in the corporation. It wasn't just about maximizing profits. There are responsibilities. There was, you know, John Kenneth Galbraith wrote about the, the rule of a technocracy of experts uh, and managers. And it had lost some of its brutal class edge. Uh, that's all back. Uh, and all uh, the, the Business Roundtable has recently tried to revive some of that to uh, dethrone the notion that shareholder value is supposed to, to govern everything else. But uh, that's that's just uh, pious wishes, really. Uh, and uh, like it does seem that um, uh, that well, it just seems like as Warren Buffett said, uh, there's a class war going on, and my class has been uh, the only one that's been fighting it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's changing, and you know, the left has an awful lot uh, of forces arrayed against it. But it does seem like uh, the possibilities are stronger than they've been in, in forty or fifty years. Yeah, and I mean, do you feel like? not just stuff happening in DSA, but just this push for Medicare for all, that there is the understanding of, you know, you don't literally know whether countries of our size and wealth do uh, do insurance. Like this is, I mean, how should the left seize this moment? Well, um, uh, as, as aggressively as possible. Um, <laughs> But one of the things that excite me is that it's fun to see people running for uh, mundane offices. You know, you, the, the Green Party is always running for president and then not much else. And you can't really do that. And no. it's amazing <laughs> to see all these people running for state legislatures and city councils. Uh, the uh, the transformation of the New York State Legislature, because and DSA people had a very large portion, a large hand in that. Uh, and the, the, the most pro-tenant legislation passed since 1955, I think it is. Uh, that's remarkable. And that really matters for people's lives. And it matters for the, the shape of national politics in the long term, for sure. But it also just, you know, city councils, same thing. Like things that can really change people's lives uh, that will raise their expectations. Uh, as my friend Sam Gindin says, one of the great successes of neoliberalism has been uh, to uh, drive down people's expectations. They just, mm-hmm. they just pull in and feel like they, uh, they, the only thing they can get in this life is what they can get for themselves. Any notion of collectivity, any notion that uh, you're, you're, you deserve something almost as a right as a citizen, uh, that, that's been you know, thrown uh, into the ditch. And uh, it'd be really nice to see that consciousness reversed. And I think these kinds of victories at uh, that the lower levels of government and also the, the kinds of um, uh, connections, solidarities, uh, the enthusiasms that people are developing as a result of uh, the Sanders campaign and Going starting in sixteen and continuing to today, um, these things have lingering benefits aside from from the election. These are real um, networks of uh, political activism of a sort that uh, I don't recall uh, since I started paying attention to politics. You know, like forty five years ago. It's uh, it's a remarkable thing to watch. All right. Well, let's end on a positive note. So thank you so much. Oh, this thank you good. for having me. Yeah. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 